Hey, everybody, and welcome to the NFL Roadshow. Day before Thanksgiving in the three-game NFL slate featuring the Bills and the Saints in the primetime window. We've got the Raiders and Cowboys in the afternoon and the Bears and the Lions in the early game. That's a 12:30 Eastern kick and a game that has become even more interesting in the last few hours. Those 0-9-1 Lions weirdly probably going to be the most stable team on that field. There was a report out of Chicago on Tuesday from a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who is not on the Bears beat. Frankly, I don't even think he covers sports. Uh, He currently works for the Patch in Chicago, and the report says that Matt Nagy was informed Monday that Thursday's game would be his last as a head coach, says that he has a top source that told him that. Cut to an hour or so later after that report came out, and Matt Nagy says at the podium at a team press conference that the report is not accurate, that he's had great communication with higher-ups, and that his firing, I guess, for lack of a better word, has not been discussed. And so we wait, with Fox ISO cameras ready to cut to a bazillion shots of Nagy and Virginia McCaskey in the stands, the Bears owner, of course, famous for attending every game, give or take a couple last year during the pandemic. And look, I'm not a huge fan of the way Matt Nagy has coached this team. I think it's probably the right decision to move on to a different coach at this point for reasons that we'll get into later in this podcast. But I do want to say that the level of vitriol that has been directed at him in the last few weeks in particular, has just been ridiculous and cruel and completely unacceptable. The chance, both at Bears games and Bulls games, and the worst offender at his son's high school football game? I don't know if you've seen the video, but there is video of the student section of the team his son's team was playing, chanting Fire Nagy while the game is going on. And I realize in that case, it was kids doing the chanting, but let's be honest, the adults were responsible for the chants at the other games. And so to act like it was just kids being stupid and not understanding why that was not okay, that feels a little obtuse to me. Because the only thing they did that was different was do it purposefully in front of Nagy's son. The other chants were also certainly heard by Nagy's family members at some point in time. And Nagy by the way, himself, who is a person and not a punching bag. It's fine to hold the opinion that he's not great at his job. I tend to hold the opinion that he's not great at his job, um, that someone else would be better at his job. But there is no amount of money that someone could be paid that would make it okay for any one of us to stop treating them like a human being. And I feel that way thinking about Jason Garrett, too, who also lost his job this week with the Giants, days after his brother lost his job as the coach at Lafayette College. Rough Thanksgiving week for that family. So I interacted with Garrett a little bit when I was reporting for NFL Network and going to Dallas somewhat frequently before we had a beat reporter there, a great one, by the way, and Jane Slater. Um, And he was always very kind to me. But more than that, there was a moment around Christmas one year that I witnessed that I thought said a lot about who he was as a person, absent football coaching skill, any of that kind of stuff, just a person. So like I said, it was around Christmas and the team had brought in carolers. They were kids who were disadvantaged in some way. I don't remember the specifics, but they were positioned in the hallway between the cafeteria and the locker room. So players going back and forth would hear them and be able to say hi and wave. And a few did stop or wave or, you know, nod and smile but not many actually stood and listened, and it kind of made me feel uncomfortable. 
thinking these guys are probably Cowboys fans. They probably won't get the chance to see these players up close again, and they're not really getting their attention. And then up comes Jason Garrett, who not only stood and listened and smiled and clapped, but he stuck around for a couple songs. He gave them a moment, and I thought it said so much about him because he was undoubtedly super busy, but he did it anyway, and I bet it meant a lot to those kids. Anyway, that doesn't mean he's a great football coach or that he should have a job infinitum, but I do think that there's something gross about the grave dancing that happens at this time of year and the glee with which people talk about other people receiving confirmation that they have failed. (sighs) Okay, that was my soapbox. I'll get down now and go on to discuss these job situations in further detail with my guest today. Mike Sando, who has been on the show before, after the draft in May was the last time that he came on, when he wrote a really interesting article for The Athletic about the way that we overvalue late first-round draft picks. It was one of my favorite episodes because of the way that it offered up concrete information to inform a conversation that we have a lot around that time of year draft time. And now he's written another article about quarterbacks and the support that they have around them and how good they've had to be in order to win. And so I'm eager to discuss that with him after, of course, we wade through the weeds of the daily news. So let's go ahead and break the huddle. Hello, let's go! Two on two on two, ready? Mike, I am looking forward to talking to you about your quarterback findings. I found that article very interesting. Um, First, the holy coaching news. A lot of stuff coming out in the last few hours here, and we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. Let's start with the thing that we know to be true, and that is that Jason Garrett is out as Giants offensive coordinator. Giants ranking dead last in offensive touchdowns since he took over at the start of 2020 with uh, just 42. I assume that this does not surprise you or that this move did not surprise you in any way. Maybe the timing mid-season, sometimes those coaching changes are a little bit surprising, but. I always question the fit because it felt like they wanted to hire him as the offensive coordinator before independent of the, the move to hire Joe Judge as head coach. So that always feels weird to me. And I, you know, a little bit of that, I felt a little bit of, of that with Dallas last year too. Remember when it was Mike McCarthy came in and you've got Kellen Moore, they seem to have worked that out. And isn't it amazing how having a good quarterback tends to make things uh, to work out, you know, and I, and I feel better about Dallas now. I feel like they sort of got through it. The performance of the Giants hasn't improved enough or hasn't been good enough um, for me to change how I felt about that. So here you are, you know, pretty deep into Daniel Jones' uh, career, relatively speaking, and making another change. Um It'll be interesting to see what they do. Do they hire around this in the future with under the assumption that, well, Jason Garrett just screwed it up and Daniel Jones is still going to be our guy? Or do we have a clean sweep next year? How wide does it go? Um, All our questions in play, I think, with the Giants. I can't imagine them moving on from Daniel Jones next year just Well, for a few reasons. One, I think you probably do make some other coaching changes or, you know, in the front office one of those two and or both, though I think the front office probably makes more sense because Judge has just been there for a short period of time. And maybe this is the coaching move that is made to kind of placate people. But Daniel Jones, unless you are absolutely confident that with everything right around him, he could not be a viable NFL quarterback. I just don't think you have enough options 
this year in the offseason at quarterback to replace him with someone that you know will be better. Yeah, and that's the whole key with any of these teams, right? I mean, what are what are your available options and are and are they better? So yeah, you could be a hundred percent right on that. I just uh you know, there's a lot of reasons why an offense doesn't perform well, and Jason Garrett could be one of them. But yeah. Jason Garrett's been on teams that had good offenses too, you know, and I think a lot the coaching is really important, but I think the quarterback is probably the number one variable in that. You think so? Because he hasn't had he hasn't had anything around him this year. And when he has, Daniel Jones has looked okay, right? Yeah. Like when he did have Saquon in the backfield, when all the wide receivers were, I don't even know if there was a time when all the wide receivers were healthy, but you know, like it feels like it's been about a month or so, maybe even more since he's actually had the guys, the, the team as they built it out there on the field. Yeah, I mean, in general, I don't mean okay. I'm talking in general, the biggest component in these situations is the players and is the is the is the quarterback. Uh, I don't know if Daniel Jones is going to be good or not. I mean, I think you can you can convince yourself forever that if everything were perfect around your guy, that it would look good. Good luck getting it. We've seen how hard it is to get it perfect around him, right? Yeah. So they can do that. I mean, I think you have to you have to evaluate him as well as part of this. And I think just giving a, a, a free pass or blanket and saying, well, Jason Garrett doesn't know what he's doing or Jason Garrett screwed it up, or we just have to get everybody right around him. Um, that helps to get all that right around him. And if you put, if you can get everything just perfect so that Daniel Jones is good, more power to you. But there's a lot of quarterbacks who do maybe can help what's around them look better too. And ide ideally you need one of those guys to get where you want to go. So right. we'll see where it goes. I mean, I, if you were a coach coming in, would you want to be committed to Daniel Jones for three years? That's a good point. Because if you do, if you do change coaches, then you're starting fresh. And is that, I just, I guess I just feel like I have not seen Daniel Jones in a good situation there. And I felt this way about Sam Darnold. And at the end of the day, now I feel like I have a clear picture of, you know, what it, what we were dealing with, with Sam Darnold. But I, I think that there's, there's part of me as a fan, and this is easier for me to say as a fan, because it's not my money that anyone is spending in order to get to the point where I feel like, okay, I confidently know that now Sam Darnold is not the answer, right? Whereas if they'd moved on from him last year, I would have still had this big question mark lingering over my head. Now, uh, does that make it right that they actually paid him money to get to that answer? Probably not if you're a Panthers fan. So I understand that there are a lot of Giants fans that will probably throw something at their you know, radio or phone when they hear me say that I think that maybe another year for Daniel Jones is the way to go, just so you can, you can more more clearly get an answer about whether or not Daniel Jones is the problem. But I think you're right. It's fair to say, you know, that there are a handful of quarterbacks in the league and the ones that you ideally want to end up with those elite quarterbacks that can make up for those deficiencies around them. And that he's not that guy. And remember, they have to make a decision in May, whether to pick up his option right on Daniel Jones. So uh, that's a consideration for either Joe judge or the next coach or the next GM or whatever's going to happen. Uh, and that's a situation that Carolina got itself into with Darnold, um, where now he's on the books for whatever 20 million or, you know, next season fully guaranteed. 
Um, I think that's part of it too. So I think that, you know, in general, if you have a really good quarterback, I think they show you in the first few years, even in a difficult situation, some, some really great flashes probably. So you'd have to ask yourself, has he done that? Uh, what's the level of commitment on an option? Um, and it would be reasonable. It would be reasonable for, for them as an organization to say, you know what, we haven't got, it's been so bad around him that in the offensive line that he hasn't had a chance and we're not willing to throw, uh, to throw that away. Let's give it a chance here a couple more years. I personally think you need to be at the same time considering what your other options are, uh, because I, I don't think we've seen necessarily that, you know. And then there's also asset and resource allocation in the offseason, right? Like how many holes do you have to fill this offseason? Do you want to take on the quarterback in the process of doing that also? Or do you just do all of the other holes and then go get your quarterback? If after a year with that, Daniel Jones still hasn't proven anything. Yep. Yeah, it's a fascinating situation. I don't think firing Jason Garrett solves it, is it, I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so what about firing Matt Nagy? <laughs> it would appear that uh, there are some mixed reports. Well, there aren't really mixed. I guess, yeah, we're a little bit more in a gray area there as far as what's going on. So the report from a non-Bears reporter reporting that uh, he has been told that Thursday is going to be his last game as Bears head coach. And he denied that at the press conference on Tuesday saying that that's not accurate. And he hasn't been told anything to that effect. I wouldn't be surprised if that ended up happening one way or the other. And I do think that he's in a tough position because of Justin Fields, injury in terms of timing, right? Because you could make the argument that the only thing that there was really left holding him to this job was his chance to prove that he was the right coach to move forward with Justin Fields. I would argue that he proved already that he is not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just beyond how the offense has looked or Fields has looked, um, I really think it's just how he projects himself as a head coach hasn't been presidential enough for me. And because you look at Matt Nagy, he's never had a losing record until this season. Isn't that amazing? That really is. You kind of, we had this perception of Matt Nagy as a failure there, and it's kind of been a bad situation. Well, look at his record compared to the other coaches that were hired in that coaching cycle. His record's good. But it's sort of, we felt like it's kind of slipping and getting worse, and it is. You had a good record, sort of average records, now bad. And the quarterback thing has been disappointing the whole way. But I think it's, I think the handling of those things, the way he has communicated his plan or his intentions has always rubbed me the wrong way. I've always felt like he's trying to pull one over on me. You know what I mean? Not me personally, but as an, as the audience or as the fan base or as the media, um, I just don't, I kind of feel like he's not as straight as he should be in all of these things. And he tries to tell you, you know, that it's sunny out when it's raining and right. we're all kind of looking here going, well, coach, that's not really, what we're seeing. So I feel like it's run its course despite his record being better than you would imagine. Um, and I was talking to a, uh, to a, an executive from another team on Sunday night, just about stuff that was going on. He was like, I wouldn't be, I think that has to be it for Nagy. The only thing that might save him is they have to play on Thursday. So if you're that organization, you just have to ask yourself, do you, uh, is having him there more of a distraction than not having him there? Is it more of a disadvantage? Because if you move on from him, you get to evaluate others. Maybe you look at whoever else on your staff you would you would want to do it. Maybe then you can have honest conversations with people 
that are available for the job. Talk to them about it in an open manner. I think there's an advantage to that. Just moving on from a coach in general when you know it's over. I agree. And that's something the Bears have never done. They've never moved on from a coach midseason. So this would be a historical first in that department. Um, I feel like he. So I don't know this to be true. I haven't talked to anybody linked to the Bears. This is just my read of the situation based on what I'm seeing. He doesn't seem like he wanted Justin Fields. Because he felt like in those first few games when he put him out there and it felt like he didn't want to put him out there, right? It felt like it got to a point where someone maybe said to him, like, this is this is kind of it. And so we want to see what you can do with him. So please move that guy into the starting job. And then he almost like. Uh, just he didn't he didn't fit what he wanted to do offensively. And it's consistent with really the way in which a lot of us think he misused Mitchell Trubisky by not using his legs more frequently in the first few games. It was like he just plugged Justin Fields into Andy Dalton's game plan and almost set him up to fail. It felt like, and I know that that's probably not a fair assessment and that people close to Matt Nagy would say like, why would he want him to fail? But it just didn't feel like that was his guy and that this was destined to fail from the beginning of this season. Yeah. I felt, I feel like Matt Nagy has, uh, made it too much about what he wants to do. And I'll give you a great, I think that's exactly what you're saying. And, and the contrast is look at uh, Philadelphia with a first year coach, Nick Sirianni. After four or five games this season, they completely switched how they played. Uh, they've gone from being one of the, they, they were actually, if you can believe this, they were the pass heaviest team in the league for the first four or five games. If you just look at early downs, kind of in the first half of the game, you know, that time, when you can kind of choose if you're going to be a running or passing team, right? Um, they were number one on the pass. They were like 65% or higher on the pass. Since then, they're number 32. Wow. They, they looked at their team and they said, I wrote about that. I'll plug my column in the athletic on Monday, my pick six column. But I've never seen a transformation like that. But that's the coaching staff or somebody there saying, you know what? We have Jalen Hurts. He is a different quarterback than how you want to run your offense or would otherwise run your offense for a quote unquote, you know, typical quarterback in the NFL, right? There is no such thing as a typical quarterback. There's your quarterback. Yes. There's who you have. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was kind of a, uh, a criticism sometimes of like an Adam Gase. Hey, he wanted to do what he did with Peyton Manning. Well, you don't have Peyton Manning, right? You know, those types of things. So I think Nagy has, I think that's been a fair criticism of Nagy and he hasn't been able to, put him put put the team or the player above what he would want to do and you pick that up just in the way that he talks almost that's that disconnect i'm talking about and i don't know if it's a an arrogance but it feels like that to me yes. when you're when the way he when he's talking to you doesn't it i wonder if he's kind of caught in a weird in between space because the nfl and offenses are changing so quickly it feels like and I liken this to like people in my line of work. When I came up in the business of sports broadcasting, sports journalism, it was very big J journalism. You are not the story. Nothing, nobody cares what you think, right? And then it's completely shifted to if you just tell the story like a robot, people don't know who you are and they don't care about you and you will get thrown to the wayside. So the whole, your people in my generation, I feel like kind of in this weird middle ground where you got to shed some of those lessons that we thought were so important and were 
were the job and now kind of incorporate more of our opinions and then do some of the stuff on social media that feels just gross because it's so clearly about you and branding yourself and all that stuff. Well, he feels like he's maybe in the middle of like a football version of that where he came up and coaching thinking this is what an offense looks like. This is what leads to success. And he has not yet been able to shed some of that for a more modern offense. And when you're handed a Justin Fields to to throw away what you have always taught yourself is what is a good offense. You don't have that guy, right? And those guys still exist in some way out there, but this is a different offense and you better be able to pick up that ball literally and run with it. Yeah. It, yeah. It did feel to me. It felt to me like Matt Nagy thought he played a role in just in Patrick Mahomes success. And so we're just going to try to come in and do it. Uh, and do it my way because I had, I had a role in that and I'm going to have a role in this, but you're right. It's not always about um, what you want to do. I also think there's two, something you said earlier struck me about, it didn't feel like that he was that excited about fields. If you look at two of the coaches that picked quarterbacks this year, Kyle Shanahan's the other one. Um, they're sort of deep into their tenure with they're, they're four or five years into this thing. And there's expectations around their team to be good. Now they each have a veteran quarterback that um, isn't really a top quarterback, but, but they're much better than going through the growing pains of really bad quarterbacking in the so coaches' true. minds, in the yep. coaches' minds. Yep. Um, and, and then you get to this point where you get into the season and you're, you're caught between, uh, especially in, in Nagy's case, I feel even though Nagy has a better record than Kyle Shannon and he hasn't been to a Super Bowl, so it probably accelerates his timeline. And he doesn't have the reputation of Kyle Shanahan, right? Kyle gets a break because uh, people think he's a much better schemer offensively. But there's a pressure to win now, but there's also a need to look at our new guy. And I think sometimes the timelines are so important that you're on as a coach, as a GM, and Maybe Matt Nagy at, at practice felt like, okay, here's what I want to do offensively. Justin Fields is a ways away. I mean, God, we put him out there and he got ear holed because he didn't see the blitzer coming. I mean, I don't want to put him out there and have him fail for the first half of the year. So he were they caught in between a little bit. You know what I mean? Caught in between. Because I haven't felt like Kyle Shanahan has just been itching to put Trey Lance out there either. Didn't you draft this guy? Aren't you excited to get him out there? Not really. You don't feel that. So, well, but what's interesting about that is that they were in such different positions going into the year, even like we, I sat here and said, look, I, they're kind of similar in the sense that they drafted these guys high and you want to see what they get out of them. But I felt like the Niners had a roster that could be competitive right now. And so that gives Shanahan a reason to move forward with somebody where the floor is lower, right? Like, you know, they haven't won but, Nagy has but a better right. record. So that's changing. That's changing. And yeah. I think we are getting to a point in the season where people are going to actually start calling for Trey Lance the same way that people called for Justin Fields early, because it was just obvious early that even if the Bears could sneak into the playoffs like they did last year, they didn't belong last year. They weren't going weren't anywhere in the postseason. A hundred percent. So even though technically, yeah, they could, if they were so inclined, hang up a banner and say we went to the playoffs. But everyone knew when they were in that game that they had no business being there. They weren't as good. And so for me, I thought if I was a Bears fan, I would even be frustrated by the fact that we went to the playoffs because it just prolonged any kind of inevitable changes. 
that you knew the team needed to make in order to become truly competitive. We knew that at the beginning of this year, that this bears team was not going to go to a super bowl. So blow it up now, start rebuilding, get Justin Fields in there, see what you have. Andy Dalton's not taking you to the super bowl because you don't have the team around him to do that. Jimmy Garoppolo, I thought at the beginning of the year, wrongly, as it turns out, maybe they, he actually did have enough people that were good around him to go to a super bowl. So ride that and see where it goes. Don't put a rookie in there who can blow it all up and ruin your chances. Now those chances are kind of blown. So maybe now it's time to go look. But but Garoppolo's been playing great the last few games. So I think I think Garoppolo's played well enough. They're five and five. We'll see what they do this week. But I think Garoppolo's played well enough to put that to rest for him. And they, in this weird NFC, can try to make that push for it. I think it's a hard ask for somebody in Nagy's position who felt like uh, he had to win this year to be a developmental quarterback guy. How many times have we seen these? It's happened a million times. You draft a quarterback in the first round, and then the coach is fired after that year because he's on a different timeline. It happened to Daniel Jones, right? But see, that's why he needed to just get on board. In my opinion, the writing was on this wall. He got a stay of execution at the end of last year because they went to the playoffs when they shouldn't have probably gone to the playoffs. So go into this season and look at Justin Fields as the gift that you've been given and really, truly embrace him and understand that even if you go 500 with Justin Fields, there's that you have an asterisk next to it now. Now it's look what I did. He got better as the year went on. I can work with this. I've shown you how I can work with this. You should bring me back because I'm the right guy for him. And you've already invested so much in him. The fact that he didn't go at it from that point of view, I think is yes, understandable when you can feel them breathing down your neck and you know that Andy Dalton can win you more games right now. But he needed to understand what he didn't need to do this year was actually win games. He needed to develop Justin Fields. That's how you earn your job back. Yep. and. And he must have felt that the way to do that is to bring him along and put him in there for part of the season and not ask him to go the whole way because there's going to definitely be downs uh, in that process. And so did he think, hey, the second half of the season, we get him going, we give people a taste that looks good and we want to see more. I don't know. And that's why he I, that's why I think he's telling us that he wasn't his guy that that's not who he wanted because he wasn't so excited about the talent that Justin Fields brought to the table that he was confident that he would get better as the season went on. Right. If you're like, this is who they're telling us that I have to have now because they drafted him because he fell to us in our spot. And now he's my guy and I don't actually believe in this. So I think he's going to be the nail in my coffin as opposed to, you know, the rocket ship that I'm going to attach myself to. Yep. And we don't, we don't know for sure what he thought of it, but you, like we were saying, he didn't just get the feeling he was doing cartwheels over it or to, or to play him, which I, I felt the same way with Kyle Shanahan and Trey Lance. Like he's not just itching to play him. So I don't know if that means that the, the coaches weren't all in on the quarterbacks. I mean, that that's hard if that's the case, but uh, whatever it is in, in Chicago, I think the writing's on the wall and we want to, everybody wants to see somebody else work with Justin Fields and somebody else messaging for the team from the head coach position. And not even just Justin Fields, by the way, the fact that they didn't use Cole Komet in this past week's game against the Ravens. Right. And in two different ways, one, the Ravens have not been good about containing tight ends. Tight ends have had a lot of success against uh, the Ravens. 
And so one could have looked at this and thought this is going to be a great game from a matchup standpoint for Cole Komet and Cole Komet also provides Justin Fields is like a, an outlet and a security blanket. So it's really twofold the, your reasons to go to Cole Komet and they targeted him two times and he had one catch. And then Khalil Herbert, who proved to be a weapon, right? I understand working David Montgomery back in and having him be the starter, but then get creative find a way to get Khalil Herbert on the field, especially in a game where you don't have Allen Robinson and you're just getting all of your, you you're having fewer and fewer, fewer pieces in the cupboard for you. We'll find a way to get one of the pieces that has shown he can do things well on the football field, get him on the field. He had one rush attempt. That's the usage of Khalil Herbert in that game. So there are a lot of different things for me that are saying this isn't working Let's move on. There are some things around the league that are working. Um, Jonathan Taylor is a special, special running back, or at least looking like that. Now he's got, he's got a lot around him, right? That offensive line in Indianapolis, which is key to a running back success. uh, They're very good. Do you think that he has a viable MVP argument? Because that seems to have been the conversation this week. Um, I do. I think he does. It's sort of one of those years where there's not, there's not a quarterback having an amazing year by quarterback standards statistically, right? There's not someone on pace who's going to have 55 touchdowns and they just have to win it. So I think that does open the door, you know, that opens the door for other types of candidates. Um, Lately, it seems like there's been so much in the passing game that some quarterback is going to have an amazing year and have to win it. So um, I think it's been an interesting season for the value of the running game. And we, we all know you have to pass to win and, and you don't, you can't just go out there and run the ball all the time. Like it's 1975 um, and win football games. But I think some of the teams, there's a lot of teams that could use a dynamic rushing threat. And I think that was a, a big story of this past week was Tennessee without Derrick Henry, you know, it's just going to be harder for them. Um, look at, we're a few years removed from it, but Seattle doesn't have not only Chris Carson, but just go back to the Marshawn Lynch era. How much better did, did, did Russell Wilson look when people had to really focus on a good runner? You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Um, This season, uh, Carson Wentz has six turnovers. Okay. He had 19 at this point last year. He had 20 passes. Yes. On Sunday, 20. I mean, that's a first half for Carson Wentz in Philly. And how much easier was the game for them? What's an issue? What's been an issue for Kansas City this year? Well, people are taking away the big play with those two deep safeties. How do you get people out of that? Well, if you could run somebody like this, it totally changes how people play you. Buffalo, what's their Achilles right now? Well, what can they hang their hat on? You know, they could use some of that. So so much of the run is the running game important or so much of that argument is, is on the extremes to be irrelevant. No one's saying you should pass on every play and no one's saying you should run on every play. What we're saying is it sure is great if you can do both and some, a runner like that, if they just had a below average runner in Indy, I think their season's different. So interesting. You brought up some of those teams there, Kansas city, Buffalo, it, makes me wonder how you fix that problem in the off season, because we've also talked in the off season about a lack of willingness to use um, resources in the draft, at least high in the draft on a running back. 
which is where you're going to go typically get that guy that's a game breaker, right? So do you see, could you see those teams that we assume will be picking toward the end of the first round, possibly using that pick on a running back that does change things for their offense? I mean, the Chiefs just did this a few years ago with Clyde Clyde Edwards-Alaire, but just maybe it looks didn't get the guy that they thought that they were getting. I'm much more okay with it as we get to the bottom of the first round. I think it's hard to justify in the top 20 picks or whatever, you know, or top 15 picks where you're really the, where the, the pool of a really elite talent is, then I would have, a, then I think you, you got to probably go away from that position. But I think as you get into true crapshoot times, you know, um, now you're still going to make mistakes because, you know, look at uh, Rashad Penny was taken in that draft. Uh, Sony Michelle was taken in that draft, right? Uh, by the by Belichick and Pete Carroll, and they turned out to not be um, the productive players. So, you still have to try to get the dynamic player. Look at Chris Ballard, even took some heat for trading up to take Jonathan. Uh, what was it in the 2020 draft? Yeah, so this draft. is his tra- second year, right? So, yeah, it was a 2020 draft. I believe they had the 44th pick. And then they went and traded up to 41. I'm going to look at it right here. Yes, Jonathan Taylor was 41. They traded up and people were like, yeah, trading up for a running back. Well, you know, if you think a guy is special and a difference maker, um, I think it's okay at that position. Um, and in that range. Not too high. You know, I I never advocate for it, you know, in the top 10 or, you know, you know the, I suppose if it's a Christian McCaffrey and he really affect can affect you in the passing game, you know, there's, if it's Marshall Falk, would I take him that high? Yes. I think if you're just a, if you're dynamic in all the areas, then you can justify it. Otherwise I'd wait a little bit longer, but the value of those guys when you get them is, is uh, really good. Nick Chubb, Nick Chubb, 35th overall pick in the 2018 draft. He's another guy that is a game changer for that offense. You know, and I'm looking at the 2020 draft. So the 35th overall was DeAndre Swift to, to Detroit. You know, they have a lot of issues. I mean, he's not going to save the day for them, but uh, I think is a good player, right? Is a is a. Uh, I mean, I would argue probably their best offensive player. Yeah, a good. So uh, I think any quarterback would tell you that. You know, the game of football is stressful, and the number of plays that the quarterback has to make a decision in a game or be subject to a rush or the number of times your, your, there's a, your offense has to pass protect the, there's a balance in there that is more ideal than less ideal. And I think when you have, when you can get positive results by handing off, it's a real boost for your offense. Cause it's pretty easy for the quarterback to do. It's not stress. So that is the kind of quarterback support that you did not actually measure in this article that you wrote last week for The Athletic that I thought was very, very interesting. You talked about quarterback support and looked into which quarterbacks have been in the best situations, not in terms of the people that they have around them on offense, but what? Yeah, just the thing that they can't control at all, which is the quality of their defense and special teams. So, uh, you know, using basically expected points added EPA, you can measure the contributions of each phase, right? If, uh, if our defense gets a pick six and returns at 98 yards, there's a huge change in expected points. And if we measure those changes on every play, we can see how good your defense and special teams are. 
And when you do that for quarterbacks over the last 10 to 15 years, you can see that Joe Flacco's teams had a defense and special teams that averaged ranking fifth overall. You're going to win a lot of games. I don't care who your quarterback is. If you have a top five defense special teams, you're going to have a winning record. Mitch Trubisky's average sixth. Okay, well, we talked about Matt Nagy. Matt Nagy didn't have a losing record in his until this season. How does that happen when Mitch Trubisky is your quarterback? It happens because you're averaging sixth on defense and special teams. You go to the other end and say, wow, Derek Carr, it's 25th. Well, what are the narratives around Derek Carr? They're changed. They're hurt by the fact that he has such poor support. You know, so I think it's at those extremes when you look, Matt Ryan is 23rd defense special teams. Drew Brees is 21st and Drew Brees is a Hall of Famer, but there were three years they were seven and nine there. Was Drew Brees just not clutch in those years? No, no, no. He's swimming with an anchor tied to his foot and he's barely keeping his head above the water. And that anchor was the defense of the Saints, which was historically bad for a few years. Did those year do, those defenses in those years bring his average down dramatically? Like when he actually started to have more success there in New Orleans, did the defense also get better or was he f- swimming upstream for a majority of his career in that way? Yeah, he swam upstream for a majority of his career, but did have some years where where they were in the top half of the league. And what do you know? They're 13 and three in those years, you know. Um, so I think there's a for for the great quarterback, if you can just be middle of the pack, you know, in those areas, that's fine, because you're not going to probably have a highly paid quarterback and be top five on, on defense and special teams. Most years it can happen. And that, one of the amazing things about Tom Brady's career is they've done that. You know, they've been a top 10, at least defense special teams throughout most of his New England and now in uh, in Tampa. And that combination is. 10 Super Bowl appearances. Do you think that that is tied to, because much has always been made about the fact that Tom Brady took less to stay in New England. He never took market value. He could have just raked them over the coals financially and made it harder for them to put a team around him. I think that the actual financial benefit of that, you know, whatever, a few million dollars, isn't enough to swing it. I think the message it sends is big. I think it's, you know, and and then they also are a team that's sort of been an interchangeable parts or different types of players on defense. Um, I think that all worked together well and, and Brady taking less money allowed them leverage with other players to play how they wanted to play because look, Tom Brady's not getting special treatment. And then at the end, when Brady wanted a little more special treatment or, or just wanted to be, you know, recognized that they got tired of not getting his due, you know, they moved on from him, And uh, amazingly here they are at seven and four. So the players that had the most help in this study, uh, it went in this order, Flacco, as you mentioned, and then Josh Allen and Mitchell Trubisky tied for second, um, Russell Wilson after that. And he had the, you know, Legion of boom and obviously a lot of help in that department. We know for a good deal of his career, Lamar Jackson, Tom Brady. And then I thought this one was very interesting with Sam Darnold at number seven. How is Sam Darnold number seven? How it shocked me. Well, because I think in his first couple of years, um, in fact, I'll, I'll scroll down to Darnold here. Uh, they, they were actually pretty good on de- in the defense special teams component, better than I thought. They did have one, I think, really bad year, but bear with me here as I scroll down to him. Um, Darnold, Sam Darnold. Where did we have him? About fifth or sixth? Yeah, here he is. Okay, so 
in 2018, the Jets were eighth in combined defense special teams and 29th in offense. So that's how you have a bad record. In 2019, they were sixth combined defense special teams, 32nd on offense, right? Uh, then in 2020, they were bad in both. And that's when it really all fell apart and you know they made a coaching change. Uh, but th- even this year in Carolina, they until this last week, they were uh, second in the defense right. special teams component. Yeah. 31st on offense. So maybe like you were saying, maybe we have a little bit more of our answer on Darnold, right? We've we've seen it in two different places. And that's not a fully flushed picture because it, it's part of it, right? And it's a very interesting and relevant side, but that doesn't mean that he had an offensive line or running back or wide receivers or any of those other components that would be somewhat helpful for a quarterback to have success. Darnold had unusually historically bad um, in that in that area. I actually did a different quarterback support piece maybe a year or two ago, and it was much it was simpler. But all I did was added up the number of starts each team got on offense from every player except quarterback who went who was named to a Pro Bowl. And over the 16, 17, 18, 19 seasons, there was one team that got zero starts from pro bowlers on offense at those positions. And it was the jets. I was trying to think of anyone. Andre Roberts as a special teamer was the only offense player. He's a receiver, you know, but it was on special teams that he made it. Um, and if you look at the other end of the spectrum over those years, like Dallas and Pittsburgh had 200 and some starts, you know, or something like that from people who went to the pro bowl, pro bowl and imperfect, you know, it's not the perfect measure, right. but it is a general just ballpark. If you have zero, if you had, it's easier to make the Pro Bowl now. If you have zero, if you're playing on a New York area team and have zero people in the Pro Bowl for years, I mean, how bad are you? True story. You're <laughs> right. Because are we even counting for if you make the Pro Bowl, somebody who is like the third alternate or whatever and actually ends up playing in a Pro Bowl because everyone else said no? I actually, in the piece, on that piece, I think I differentiated it. I think they had zero either way. Oh my goodness. I think no one was even named. I mean, you could try to name one. You know, I mean, it's, you can't. No, I can't. I can't. I was trying to think of that. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about Sam Darnold being that high too, is that he's higher than Jared Goff. Jared Goff had so much help defensively when he was in Los Angeles. Like that's one of the narratives I have in my head about Jared Goff. Now, I, I wonder if just this year in Detroit brings his averages down so much. Yeah, it does. So here were the defense special teams for him with the Rams. Four, 19, nine, and two. So three of the four years before he went to Detroit, um, they were top nine. And then in the bad year, they were 19, which is probably dragged down by special teams as much as anything. Um, so, you know, now he is sort of getting the Darnold, uh, you know, the situation where you're bad on both, right? And I mean, what quarterback would have a winning record with Detroit right now? Yeah, I can't think of anyone. You know what I mean? If Tom Brady was yeah. on Detroit, do they mm-hmm. have three more wins? Maybe You know, you know what I mean? It just doesn't flip it around. So. Right. Well, and they've been, well, they have been in some close games. So a good quarterback could, you could make the argument that a good quarterback would have made a pretty big difference in the win column, but not enough. They're not a, they don't have a roster to be a winning team this year. Um, What, what do you think, what you learned here about Derek Carr and the lack of support around him? Uh, And we've talked a lot in his career about the lack of support offensively, right? The fact that he hasn't had that consistent stretch the field weapon, I think has been just huge in terms of affecting the narrative about him. The fact that he's not aggressive, the fact that he doesn't 
you know, I think for years, people thought that he might not have the arm, you know, and we've seen that blowing up at the beginning of this year when they did actually have that stretch the field guy in Henry Ruggs. And now we're seeing it revert back to the same narrative that we've seen for the last couple of years. Now that coincidentally, uh, there is no Henry Ruggs there to do that for him. But what do you think is the biggest thing that we glean from what you found out uh, as far as the defense and special teams about Derek? To me, it just confirms that he's had an impossible situation to win there. Uh, and so I love to use these types of things when it's extreme to extinguish the narrative of whether a guy has the it factor or the winning or some of those things that just sort of get, they're not really quantifiable, but they get attached to a player. So I, I totally buy him some slack on that. I think he's actually shown a lot this year in his public handling of really difficult situations with the firing of his coach. He's shown grace. He's shown leadership, those sorts of things. The, the on the field criticisms of him are the ones that, could any player could have, you know, coming out of college, he didn't stand in there against the rush. You know, there, his toughness was kind of indirectly questioned that way. And I think he made strides in that in the last couple of years. And then I don't know what's happening that, you know, now I think you just put an asterisk next to them and say, um, this is really tough. I mean, I watched all of his throws yesterday just to see what was going on. It was a lot of short stuff. The protection's not good. And, you know, it's just, I'm willing to say, I'm willing to excuse Derek Carr from what happens the rest of this season because who's had a situation like this? You know, it's none of his doing. He didn't do anything. You have your, your talented receiver have a tragedy. I'm not just talking about removing him from the lineup with a ACL. This is something that weighs on. This is a friend that you're, has done something terrible and is in jail now. I mean, that doesn't happen. Um, your, your coach is fired during the year and you're now you have a special teams coach for the things that he was fired for too. For the, yes, to exactly. point. Yeah. Yeah. Not just removing these two people, but the circumstances around which they were moved, removed and how it affects your team. Um, I think this season is more of a net positive than a negative for Derek Carr and this context of being the absolute worst quarterback in terms of how much help you've gotten from something you can't control your own defense, special teams. To me, it puts a second asterisk up for him and makes it makes Derek Carr uh, viable to me as a quarterback for either the Raiders or an, another team. Like, like if we're going to make an excuse for Daniel Jones, it's much easier to do that for Derek Carr because we've actually seen him produce. Yes. We've actually seen him produce when it's good. You're right. There isn't a question mark. We, you're right. We, we know he can do it. We just need those pieces around him more consistently. The other thing that I take away here is that maybe Matt Ryan doesn't get enough credit because he is next in line right after Derek Carr as the quarterback who's been at a biggest, the biggest disadvantage from a defense and special team standpoint in his career. And this is what's so impressive. If you go back to 2008 and look at where his offenses have ranked, 8, 9, 5, 8, 5, 13, 12, 8, 1, 6, 6, 9, in the last two years, 15 and 24, they've sort of their team has come apart a little bit. That's a lot of years of being really good on offense. And you look at the defense special teams. I mean, there's a lot of 19s and 24s. There's a 32 in there, a 30. Um, he's been in that extreme situation. And I think that's why we've seen them have sporadic results, you know, as, as a team. It's been disappointing. So based on this information, would you argue that the best way to build your roster, if you have a very good two elite quarterback, is to allocate your resources on the defensive side of the ball and keep the score down for him or to spend the money on offensive resources so he can outscore anybody? 
a great it's a great question. I, I think I've leaned towards I would love to, uh, let me put it this way. There's a lot of studies that show the defense is more volatile year to year. So if I could if I could lock in a top 10 defense special teams and then have less resources left over for my offense but have a good quarterback, I would do that. But I think it's hard to make your defense be good every year. Did anyone in this study, was there a defense that was consistently top 10? I think Baltimore has been able to do that. Um, you probably look at the teams, the quarterbacks are at the top of this thing. There has, like, I think Baltimore has been able to do it. Um, Chicago has done it for a long time, probably for 20 years. Of the last 20 years, probably 15 or more years, they've been really high in defense special teams, wouldn't you think? I mean, I think they're a team that's been able to do it. So um, it, I think New England has been able to to be good on those sides of the, on that side of the ball. So um I don't know if I have a great answer to your question because when you get into a team in a situation, you can't always control who your best players are going to be. You know, and so when you see, hey, look, Cleveland's investing in offensive linemen and not something else. Yeah, but Cleveland has those offensive linemen. That's who they're paying. They're paying their best guys. So um the, the Colts are going to pay Jonathan Taylor at one point. Does that mean the other team should invest in a running back? Probably not. Should the Colts pay Jonathan Taylor? And that's a different question too, because you're going to get five. No, you're not going to get five years because he wasn't a first round pick. So you're going to get four years, right? Yeah. Okay. So four years out of him. No, right. But I mean, but there are also a lot of examples in the last few years of guys, once they're on their second contract, the wheels come off at running back. Christian McCaffrey, I thought, and I didn't realize this until earlier this year, someone pointed out he's in his fifth year. This is it. If they hadn't extended him, he would still be on his rookie contract. And he's dealing with somewhat more consistent injuries now. We're seeing him sidelined more frequently. So, you know, do we do we feel confident that Christian McCaffrey is going to be Christian McCaffrey for the next couple of years? He's a hard one because he's so elite, you know, and so different than any other running back. But I think like Cleveland did it right. It's okay to pay Nick Chubb. Just don't pay him at the way top of the market. That's what I wouldn't want to do. I wouldn't want to go really extremely high at it, but I don't have a problem if he's one of your best players and your team feels the value of that guy paying Marshawn Lynch. Okay. If they didn't yeah. pay Marshawn Lynch and he left You're Seattle, right. it would create problems in their locker room. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? He, he so defines who they are. So there's trickle down. Mm -hmm. If Jonathan Taylor so defines who they are, you can't then just say from an analytical standpoint, we don't pay running backs, sorry, and let them go. I think that hurts your team. But I would be wanting to go to him early in the process and say, hey, yes. look, let's do this deal now. Yeah. Because you've made no money. You're a high injury risk position. We're not going to take you to number one. We don't think that's best for our team because we want to do other things. But we can make it so you never have to work again in your life. Does that sound good? That's a good point. So maybe what after like year two, probably, if they've shown that they're that guy, go get them that early. You can't, uh, well, under the CBA, you can't do it until after three. The, oh, so okay. uh, you can't do it until after so your right third, then. third season. So after that point, if you feel you have a really special guy, maybe that's when the price is lowest. You know, the other, the other way to think that is, oh, just ride them out. We can franchise them. But I think when you have somebody who is a heartbeat of your team and you're trying to show to the rest of the locker room, watch this guy, how he's done it. Um, I don't like to then just be a jerk with them and, you know, in the name of some analytical formula that you have.
just right? a hard bottom line. Yeah. That makes nobody feel appreciated. You're right. You have to measure what this person means to our team. And you can't do that using statistics or EPA or uh, something about the value of the running game. I just watched the Colts and I know Taylor's important to them. Yeah. And if they don't have Taylor and they have a different back, it doesn't look the same. Right. Yep. Yep. Derrick Henry, same story. Yeah. In Tennessee. And I was, you know, when they paid him, I was kind of happy for them and worried for them because we all know, and, he, and here he is hurt, but I don't think he's shown any performance drop off. He got an injury, but a lot of guys get injuries playing football. There's a lot of guys missing time who aren't running backs. So, and that team is not the same team now that they do not have Derrick Henry there. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. Mike, I love the way your brain works. I love the fact that you do these articles for The Athletic where you take a look at things and go do these deep dives and find information, answers for us. And I really appreciate you coming on to share your findings with us here. Oh, thanks for having me. Great conversation again. Look forward to the next time. You can follow Mike on Twitter, and I highly recommend you do so. He is Sando NFL. And again, you can find his work, including the piece we discussed today on the Athletic website. It's also linked on his Twitter handle or somewhere in his Twitter profile. Um, see, I would have to go look at it if I were you because I process almost no information unless I actually see it. I'm super visual. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, we are not going to have a Friday episode Everybody's taking Thanksgiving Day off on Thursday, so no um, fantasy advice this week. Sorry about that. We will be back on Monday, though, to discuss what happened in this week 12. Um, if you enjoyed the episode today and you want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. The NFL Roadshow is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcasts, up will pop. For video clips of the show, follow me on Twitter, Lindsay underscore Rhodes. I'm also on Instagram, Lindsay Rhodes NFL. The NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Andrew Emmer. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And a special thanks to SiriusXM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I'll see you back here on Monday. Serious XM Podcasts.